Jasmine is part of our podcast family, and she reached out to me about doing a podcast on external cephalic version. Well, it's been about four up to five years, I think, that we last did our podcast on ECV. And of course, some of the information has changed. So Jasmine, it's a great podcast suggestion, and we're going to tackle ECV in this episode. Because having a baby that ends up being breached at 37 weeks can highly likely just be a chance event. But it can be deeper than that. We're supposed to look for other associated possible comorbidities. So in this episode, let's tackle ECV or external cephalic version. Jasmine, thank you for the podcast recommendation. Here's your podcast. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Speaking about external cephalic version, I would like to give a quick shout out to one of our senior residents, Dr. Carson Klein. Carson and I were on call not long ago, and we had a version to do in labor and delivery. I mean, she performed this thing textbook, and it was successful. Now, it did help, in all honesty, and we're going to cover this, that the baby was more transverse or oblique, so it really didn't take a lot to avert that child. But nonetheless, Carson did it successfully and in a textbook fashion. And by the way, you don't have to have giant, monstrous hands to kind of grab the child and then turn it, because Carson is a relatively petite young woman. Uh, And so you don't have to have these massive hands to grab the child to be successful. It can help, but it's not an isolated key factor for success. We're going to talk about success tips and tricks here to get this done correctly in just a minute. But Carson, nice job on that version. And she did it in under like three minutes. It's incredible. Baby did great. And mom, above all, ended up delivering vaginally. So Carson, nice job. All right, back to ECV. I think it's interesting that when we talk about external cephalic version or ECV, right, trying to turn that baby from breach or transverse or whatever fetal malpresentation into a cephalic presentation, there's really two camps in terms of provider idea or viewpoint. The first is, oh, I don't mess with that. I mean, it just doesn't work. And I just schedule them for a section. Or, or I discuss vaginal breach delivery, which just isn't done, unfortunately, isn't done to the same degree that it was in the past. Uh, and then the second camp is, oh, I try to burn everybody. My success rate's 100%. Yeah, that's probably not true. Uh, So be wary of those who have 100% success rates on ECVs because that means they probably did like one and it successfully verted. That's 100%, right? Because it's just not that easy and it's very, very difficult to get every version every single time because there's a lot of factors that go into this that can help predict uh, either failure or success. And I told you we're going to talk about that in a little bit later down in the podcast. I'm all for external cephalic version in the appropriate patient because it does require right patient selection. We're going to get into patient selection and contraindications in a minute. But before I do that, let's just talk quickly about breach presentation, okay? Because we kind of take it so laissez-faire. Oh, you're 36 weeks. The baby hasn't changed. You know, if it doesn't change by 37 weeks, then we can offer you a version, which is the correct thing to do. Uh, and we'll talk about timing. But, but it goes a little bit deeper than that because breach could be a flag of something else going on. 
Yeah, it is true that breach presentation at term by 37 weeks can largely be just a chance occurrence. I mean, it just, the baby just didn't get into proper position. However, based on studies, up to 10 to 15% of the cases, there could be something else going on. And that's divided, of course, in just the three compartments that could be at play here. Something in the fetal compartment, in the maternal compartment, or in the placental compartment. And out of placentas, I mean, basically like an abnormally large placenta or an extra lobe that somehow, in theory, could prevent the child from rotating because it's kind of a space-occupying lesion. But the idea is, just because it's breach, while it's highly likely just a chance event, it could be a marker of something else going on. I mean, it is assumed, after all, of course, that a baby requires some kind of neuronal integrity, some kind of muscle tone to actually vert, to actually change position down into the cephalic presentation. Remember, of course, that the prevalence of breach depends on the gestational age. About 25 to 30 percent of fetuses will be in a breach presentation at 28 weeks, but this drops down to about 3 to 4 percent at term. So if you ever ask, well, what's the percentage of breach at 37 weeks or beyond? it's actually only about 3 to 4%. Most infants who are in breach presentation at time of delivery will have a C-section because the rates of vaginal delivery of a breach have just gone down over the years. But the idea is that the prevalence of breach presentation is directly related to gestational age and also to the ability of the child, the internal wellness of the child, to move down and accommodate themselves in a head-down position. Remember, that implies normal neuronal activity and normal muscular tone. Outside of those internal fetal characteristics or risk factors that may predispose a child of staying breach at term, there are other risk factors. If a previous sibling or either parent themselves was in a breach presentation. How weird is that? That actually raises the chance that the child could be breech. Also, of course, in the uterine compartment, there's uterine anomalies that increases the risk of the child not being able to accommodate down into a cephalic presentation. So things like a bicornuate or a septet uterus or large fibroids may prevent fetal movement down into the vertex or cephalic presentation. Also, if there's extremes of amniotic fluid like polyhydramnios or oligohydramnios, obviously that can affect fetal position. If the maternal pelvis is also contracted, that may prevent the fetal head from actually accommodating in the lower uterine segment. And of course, as we've already talked about, there's these internal fetal characteristics like fetal neuronal impairment and certain congenital anomalies. It's not unusual for anencephalic children or any kind of CNS abnormality in the child to result in a breach presentation, again, because that neuronal axis, that neuronal function is just impaired. As we wrap up this list of risk factors, I find these leftover risks kind of interesting. One is female sex of the fetus. Is that wild or what? I can't explain it. Who knows? But statistically, the fetal female sex tends to have a higher prevalence of being breached than males. Also, older maternal age or advanced maternal age is a risk factor for persistent breach at term. And the last one is maternal hypothyroidism. Statistically, if the mother is hypothyroid, there's a higher chance that the baby can be born or remain breech at term. Remember, we're talking about risk factors for persistent breach at term, and we mentioned that there's some internal fetal risk factors or characteristics that can give the child that propensity to stay breech. 
chief among those are CNS abnormalities or hypotonia and possibly some genetic issues. But this issue of finding a breech baby is also important in the search for congenital anomalies. Remember I said at the beginning that a persistent breach highly likely to just be a chance event, but it does raise the possibility of having some congenital anomalies in the child that are somehow preventing it from birding into the proper position. In a publication that came out in 2021, a group of Finnish researchers, not Finnish like I'm done, but Finnish as in Finland. (laughs) Hey, sometimes a Hispanic accent gets in the way. I've told you this before, okay? This was a Finnish study out of Finland, and they actually looked at nationwide data from 1996 to 2016. That's a long time, right? 1996 to 2016. And they did this nationwide retrospective population-based record eval of all babies born breached to see if there was a higher chance of those babies having some kind of congenital anomaly. Well, here's what they found. Finland has an amazing ability to do this kind of research because they do have a national database where all the information goes into one system. So they're able to pull a lot of things out quite easily. Well, after adjusting for all of the co-variables, these researchers found that fetuses in breach presentation at delivery did have an increased risk for congenital anomalies at 6.5% compared with fetuses in cephalic presentation when congenital anomalies occurred at 3.6%. Remember, that background rate of congenital anomalies of 3.6% is not much different from the U.S. rate of background malformations anyway. The background rate of congenital malformations in the U.S. is around 3 to 3.5%, so that matches that data from Finland. But again, that p-value was less than 0.001, meaning that those babies that stayed breech had a higher chance, a double the chance, or double the percentage rather, of having some kind of congenital anomaly. The strongest associations were observed with congenital deformities of the hip, the CNS system, the respiratory system, and the musculoskeletal system. So this study supports the theory that breach presentation is, in some cases, a symptom of a fundamental problem in fetal morphogenesis or function. So the key take-home here, the clinical pearl is, hey, if the baby stays breaching your patient at term, the vast majority of time, yes, it's just a chance event. But you should have that discussion with the patient that, look, let's check your genetic information. If you haven't done so before, we should do it now. At least it's recommended. Thankfully, if that's negative, that's one thing checked off. Make sure that there's no body cavity defects. Either look back at their anatomy scan or if they had an alpha fetal protein, uh, make sure that that was checked at, at between 15 and 21 weeks. In other words, don't just say it's breached and that's the end of it. Make sure that you've done some kind of due diligence to look for other issues that you can see. There's some things that you can't see or like hypotonia. But right now, the take-home message is if it's breach, highly likely to be a chance event, but it doesn't mean you stop looking to explain for other factors. Take a look at where the placenta is. Make sure the amniotic fluid is normal. Did the uterus have some kind of missed anomaly? And the biggest factor, of course, is make sure that the child has no gross anomalies that are visible. If you're interested in looking up this study from Finland, the lead author is George Macri, and it was published February 2021. The title is Congenital Anomalies in Breach Presentation, a Nationwide Record Linkage Study, and the article is in the Journal of Congenital Anomalies. Now, before we get into external cephalic version for these fetal malpresentations, I don't want to leave this issue of internal risk factors of the child, of the fetus, for breach. Because I mentioned hypotonia, right, or muscular disorders, muscular 
minor defects. And I said, you can't see that on an ultrasound. Well, that's not completely the case. I mean, you can't see that in terms like a gross congenital anomaly, but you can get a hint of that in terms of its function in utero. And there's only one kind of ultrasound that looks at the baby's function, and that's called the biophysical profile. So unless you do a full BPP, where tone is actually one of the markers in the PPP, like for a hand clenching or arm extension or, or flexion, then you're not going to see that. Now, I love modified biophysicals because they're quicker and they're just as good as a full biophysical, but that is one of the limitations of the modified biophysical, is that if you're only looking at the acute marker of the NST and the chronic marker of the fluid level, you're kind of missing these things in the middle, and tone or potentially hypotonia is one of the things in there. Of course, the big limitation is that while it's sensitive for lack of tone, it's not specific for anything specific because it's so broad in that broad definition differential of fetal hypotonia. But in the presence of breach, if you do see just kind of an overall lack of tone on biophysical profile, it does raise the risk of potentially some kind of muscular defect. But of course, you won't know that until the child is born. And that's why it's important to let pediatrics know, hey, we've got a breach delivery coming up. Make sure you check that child. Make sure it looks physically okay. Make sure the tone is okay. And that's why communication between disciplines is vital. When we tell our NICU staff, hey, we got a breach delivery coming up, she's not in labor and it's scheduled, there's a lot in those terms, breach delivery. And it has nothing to do with the technique. That's for us as the surgeons. But that word, breach presentation, that term, should make a trigger snap in those pedi pediatricians' mind, man, I better check for hypotonia. And if they don't bring that up to you with the, their conversation, you need to bring it up with them because that's an important fact not to overlook. We're going to answer a lot of practical questions regarding ECV in this episode, like should you really be giving tributylene? What about neuroaxial anesthesia? By the way, that's a brand new topic regarding the college and ECV because the college redid their practice bulletin in 2020, and there's a whole section here on neuroaxial anesthesia, and I'm going to tell you that data here in this episode. And we're going to get into things like is a prior C-section a contraindication? What about an anterior placenta? Should you give Rogam for this? All of these things we're going to get down to the bottom of in this episode. So we got lots to cover. So let's get to the first question right now, which is when should you do this? When should you offer ECV assuming that the fetus stays in a breech presentation? And of course, if the patient accepts the challenge of having an ECV. Before we get into the EGA answer, did you hear what I said right there? If the patient accepts the challenge, the opportunity of ECV, because patients need to know that this is out there. I mean, I've had physicians say, very, you know, very caring doctors, oh, if they're breached, I just offer them a C-section because extracephalic version, that just doesn't work. We go straight to section. Well, wait a minute, that, that's robbing a patient uh, of a potential solution to prevent a C-section. And forcing, on the other hand, forcing everybody to get an ECV is also wrong because there's risks involved with this procedure. I mean, it's small risks, and ACOG quotes that as under 1%, but these are real risks that can occur. So you can't force anybody to get it. And at the same time, you can't kind of keep patients in the dark about it. This is part of the informed consent process. So remember, if you have your patient that's breached, you need to tell them, look, there's two things to do here. We can try to change the baby knowing that there's no guarantee that it will work. Uh, and even if it works, there's a chance the baby can go back to breach. That's possible. Or we could just go to a, a 
you know, a primary section. And so this is an important fact to, to talk about because it is part of the patient's decision-making process to be given the risk and benefits of each. Now, if the patient is a prior section, remember I said that's one of the questions we're going to get to, so let's just kind of beat the punch there. If they've had one prior low transverse C-section, that is not a contraindication to an external cephalic version. Now, remember, if they've had a classical C-section and their breach, don't give them a version because there's no data on that safety. But more important, you only do a version when a vaginal delivery is possible. So if they've got a classical C-section, vaginal delivery is not possible or at least not recommended. So don't do an ECV or don't offer an ECV in that setting. Vaginal delivery has to be a viable option, of course. So for patients that have a low transverse, it is not contraindicated to have an ECV trial. Man, I hate when I go off script because we have a whole thing on contraindications that we're going to get into, but I just couldn't help myself. But I remember once on the oral boards, this was asked of a candidate, why classical C-section is contraindicated for an external cephalic version. And the answer that they gave was right, but it's not what we're looking for. I mean, the answer was, oh, well, there's no data for that. And it's very high risk of rupture with an ECV on a classical. So we don't do that. And that's right. But it's irrelevant (laughs) because the right answer we're looking for is, well, because vaginal delivery can't be contraindicated to begin with. I mean, that's the whole reason we're doing a version so they can have a vaginal delivery. And it's not recommended to have a vaginal delivery after classical. So outside of the fact that there's no data on verting in a classical or a vertical uterine incision, a vaginal delivery is just not even recommended. So we shouldn't do it. And they totally blanked on that whole portion and said, oh, it's a higher risk of rupture with the version, which is right, but it's a higher risk of version with labor. <laughs> so anyway, just remember when you're asked those things for the next time around for the boards, just remember why classical C-section is contraindicated with ECV. It's not the active ECV itself. It's the vaginal delivery that would follow. All right, finally, back to the EGA question. ECV is recommended to occur at 37 weeks and zero days and beyond. Remember, at 36 weeks, that's where you really start checking for fetal presentation. But the idea is you want to wait until 37 weeks to vert. There's a higher chance you can actually have success at 36 weeks. But because it's preterm, it can revert back. So ACOG recommends waiting until 37-0 to do the trial of version. Plus, if something goes south, which again, it's a risk, but it's a very small risk, then at least the child will be early term. So if you're asked on labor and delivery or on your oral board or whatever by a colleague, at what EGA should we try to vert? It is at least 37-0. And of course, there's some data that the more you wait beyond that, then it's a lower risk of success just because the child is bigger. And in theory, the volume goes down as you become full term and then late term and then obviously post term. So the ideal time to do this is in the 37th week of pregnancy. And if somehow they go MIA, they're missing and don't see them back until 38, then do it as soon as possible. And there's no contraindication based on being 40 weeks or beyond. It's just that your chance of success greatly decreases based on some data. So we've answered our first question about when to do this, and that's at 37 weeks. 
The other question has to do with something we already touched on, which is doing ECV in women who have had previous uterine surgery. We already talked about a low transverse C-section, and that's not a contraindication to an ECV, although a classical is. Now, there's just no data or very, very limited data on women who've had transmural myomectomy and then are breech and then ask for external cephalic version. But that follows the same logic as a classical C-section. External cephalic version would be uh, contraindicated in women with transmural myomectomy for the same reason it's contraindicated in a classical because vaginal delivery is not recommended in that setting. But if again, the second question that we're answering is, is C-section contraindicated for ECV? And the answer is no, as long as it's two or less in number of C-sections, and they've both been low transverse. In other words, as long as vaginal delivery is not contraindicated. Let's tackle the next question, which is doing this in early labor. Well, the answer is as long as a patient accepts it, Early labor is actually not a contraindication to external cephalic version as long as a physician is comfortable with that. There are some scattered reports of successful ECV reported during early labor and data derived from the nationwide inpatient sample. It is a little dated though, but it did cover greater than 10 years from 1998 to 2011, found that ECV performed during early labor had a success rate of 65%. The key there, of course, is to do this in between contractions, have adequate pain control, and we'll talk about neuroaxial analgesia in just a minute, and still administer tributylene. Our next question is particularly important for our patients because this is exactly what patients will ask is, well, wait a minute, what's the harm of doing this? What are the adverse events reported with ECV? Well, according to the college, yes, there are some risks, but thankfully they happen less than 1%. According to the ACOG, risks that patients must be informed about include abruption, umbilical cord prolapse, pre-labor rupture of membranes, stillbirth, fetal maternal hemorrhage, and of course the need for urgent cesarean section. Now, all babies can have a transient drop in fetal heart rate because of the vagal effect of grabbing its head and trying to move it into another position. Remember, they are temporary. Fetal heart rate changes during attempted ECV are not uncommon, but the heart rate typically stabilizes when the procedure is discontinued. That's why it's important, though, to do this only in the hospital setting. The patient should have an IV. The patient should have had terbutaline to prevent uterine contraction as a response. We're going to tackle terbutaline next. And if the patient desires no actual anesthesia, it's actually okay. Again, this is a big change from the college because neuroactual anesthesia, before the data was like, nah, maybe, but now the data is firmer. Plus, if something goes south, then the patient already has anesthesia. The next question that we'll tackle is the use of a tocolytic agent before ECV. The short answer is yes, but all the data seems to support only one tocolytic agent. And of course, we've already mentioned it, that's tributylene. A randomized study of terbutaline found the success rate of ECV associated with the use of this medication to be almost double the success rate without its use. In the vast majority of published studies, a tocolytic agent had been used routinely, and most of the data does favor the use of terbutaline at a one-time dose given anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes before the trial of ECV. I like to wait about 10 minutes before attempting the ECV just to make sure tributylene is working fine. And if they have a pulse ox on, sometimes we'll see that rise in heartbeat as that beta sympathetic effect. And that's how you know it's working. Remember, the dose is 0.25 or 250 micrograms given sub-Q. And one dose should be sufficient to do the ECV attempt. 
before we get into one of our final questions, which is, well, who should not qualify for this? And of course, we've kind of touched on that already, which is those in whom vaginal delivery is otherwise contraindicated. But it's deeper than that. It's broader than that. And I'm going to tell you that final answer as we get towards the end of the podcast. But I have to cover the issue of anesthesia because this is an update from the college as of 2020. In the past, and when how I trained, I mean, the risk of a spinal or an epidural was just too high for something like an ECV. So the risk benefit ratio was considered just not there. But this has now changed. Individual studies have found a significantly greater success rate for ECV associated with the use of epidural anesthesia. Mainly that has to do with the patient having a relaxed abdomen and the physicians, the providers, having more liberty to be more forceful, if you will, to get that child verted because pain is no longer an issue. Even meta-analysis have confirmed that anesthesia, regional anesthesia, does increase the success rate of ECV when it's combined with a tocolytic. So according to the college, data is insufficient, that's not good, to conclusively evaluate neuroaxial anesthesia alone. However, when neuroaxial analgesia is combined with a tocolytic, it definitely can be done, can be offered to increase the success of ECV. And here's another clinical pearl. As of right now, the data is insufficient to recommend one type of neurological anesthesia over the other. In other words, there seems to be no difference to choosing a spinal or an epidural. We just don't have that data right now. So the short answer is, should patients have neuroaxial anesthesia for this? Yes, if it's combined with a tocolytic agent like terbutaline. The question is, which one should they get, spinal or epidural? And the answer to that is patient preference and anesthesiologist or CRNA preference as well. Now let's get into the question of what does this actually look like when the patient arrives labor and delivery? Well, of course, the first thing is make sure she's had informed consent done, either in the office setting, uh, in the clinic setting, or there in labor and delivery. The next, of course, is that she gets tocolytics. And we've had that discussion already, ideally, about neuroaxial anesthesia, and the patient can either accept or decline. Next, fetal well-being and contraction patterns have to be established as a baseline. So typically, they have a 20-minute NST uh, and to make sure that everything looks fine, or you can do a biophysical profile as baseline. If the strip is non-reassuring, we can get into this in, as our last question, that is a relative contraindication, okay? Non-reassuring fetal status is a relative contraindication to do this because the baby is already not happy and if, if it's already not tolerating in uterine environment for some reason, given that the extra stress of aversion is just not wise. So non-reassuring fetal status is a relative contraindication to ECV. That's why you have to have some kind of fetal assessment as a baseline before the ECV is attempted. All right, Jasmine, here's what I think you wanted to know is what does this actually look like? Because it's not just grabbing the head and then pushing it down. It's not about brute force. It's about skill and finesse and technique. Oh, you like that? <laughs> because it's true. I mean, you just can't. That's why these things fail sometimes. They just try to force and, and move the child out and it doesn't work. Because the first thing that has to be remembered is that this is about lifting the breech Upwards, so you have to kind of mobilize that, kind of de-engage it, if you will, even though it shouldn't be engaged. But that's the answer to the final question. It, but it does involve lifting the breech upwards from out of the pelvis, assuming that that it's a a true vertical breech. 
with one hand and then providing pressure on the head with the other to produce either a forward roll or a backward roll. And so the question is, well, which one do you do? Do you go forward or back? Well, it depends where the baby is. So in our case, for example, with our breach that we talked about at the intro, the breach was really more oblique, all right? So in this case, it was easier to do a forward roll. But that's why it's important to know where that head is, where the buttocks is, obviously, and where the spine is so that you can try to grab it correctly. Don't just push it. It does involve kind of elevating it out of the pelvis if it's in the lower uterine segment and then rotating either by a forward roll or a backward roll. While ECV can be performed by one person, I think it's easier to use with two people. And here's a tip. Remember, this can't be done just on the abdomen dry. You've got to put something on the abdomen. We use either mineral oil or lotion, but you've got to use something or else it's just way too irritating to the skin. An ECV attempt should be abandoned if there's prolonged fetal bradycardia, discomfort to the patient that's more than the usual, or if the procedure cannot be completed easily with those procedure maneuvers. Now, in general, even though there's no data for how long you should try, typically should be done with about three maneuvers, even though that's more custom than evidence-based. Now, remember, after every kind of roll attempt, it's important to take a look with ultrasound just to document the fetal heart rate, and that's a part of good documentation standard, all right? So in general, even though there's no data as to the maximum number of attempts to do, you shouldn't be doing this for an hour, all right? So in typical fashion, it's about three rolls that are attempted with intermittent fetal heart rate determination by ultrasound. And then once the procedure is done, whether successful or not, the recommendation from the college is to keep the patient on the monitor for about 30 minutes or longer if there's suspicion of labor to make sure that the fetal status is reassuring. For those patients who are RH negative, don't forget that Rogam or anti-D immune globulin should be given to prevent any fetal maternal sensitization. Before we leave the specifics of how to do this, the last question regarding the procedure itself is, is it evidence-based to offer immediate induction if the baby is put into a cephalic presentation? The answer is no. There is no evidence to support the routine practice of immediate induction of labor in order to minimize reversion. Remember also that we're doing this ideally around 37 weeks. And ACOG and SMFM and March of Dimes say unless there's a medical indication then elective inductions have to wait until 39. So if it verts successfully, fantastic, but you don't have to give them immediate induction. One of our last questions is what happens if it fails to vert? Well, then you've got three options there. One is you wait to see if it spontaneously verts. Second, you can offer them a vaginal breach if you're comfortable with that. And if not, then you plan for a C-section. And then third is you can offer them another trial of version. It's okay. ACOG says you can try a second time and knowing again that there's no way to predict if it's going to be successful or not. Obviously, if you did not use neuroaxial anesthesia the first time it failed, it's highly recommended to use it the second time because it does increase the odds of success. So those are the three options that you have if it fails. Number one, wait to see if it changes by itself. Second, attempt a vaginal delivery when they go into labor if you're comfortable with that or plan for a section. And then third is to try again and modify your technique if it was unsuccessful the first time. All right, Jasmine, here's our final question before we wrap this up. 
what are the other relative contraindications to ECV? Now, remember, the big contraindication is basically anything that would prevent vaginal delivery from occurring. But remember, I said it's broader than that. So things like classical C-section, transfundal myomectomy, those are given. But also things like known pelvic contraction, active genital herpes, that's a contraindication, especially if it happens in the third trimester. And then non-reassuring fetal status. Fetal growth restriction is a relative contraindication because the baby is already in a harsh intrauterine environment, and so some consider that a relative contraindication, and a stronger contraindication if that growth-restricted fetus also has abnormal Dopplers. Definitely don't put the child under ex- extra stress by trying to do an ECV in that case. And even though it goes without saying, I have to say it, because someone's going to send me a Facebook message that I forgot this contraindication, so I'm saying it right now. You cannot do an external cephalic version if there's multifetal gestation. Duh. But if I don't say it, I'm telling you, someone's going to point it out. So I'm telling you right now. Although, if once one baby delivers, then you can do an uh, internal podalic version, but that's something else. We're talking about external cephalic version. By the way, I get some really great podcast you know, topics and comments, and I love that. But I also get some kind of weird stuff. Just as a side note, somebody asked me once, hey, do, do I still see patients or is this, am I all academic? Now, obviously, you've never heard of the podcast because half of my topics come from things that are figured out at the bedside. I'm like, oh, that's a good topic. Uh, so, yes, I definitely still see patients. Thank you very much. I love it. And I love teaching. So, anyway, let's get to the end of this. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. Jasmine, I hope you think this was helpful and was what you were looking for. We've covered external cephalic version. The bulk of the data came from ACOG practice bulletin number 221, which was updated in May of 2020, as well as data from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. We're thankful for you. Thanks for sending us your messages and your comments, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.